It's Friday, October 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the impeachment inquiry continues to play out, we could be in for an unprecedented scenario. President Trump could be impeached in the House, acquitted in the Senate, and then re-elected in 2020. Congress would have nowhere to go in the event of another scandal. It might be politically impossible. David Nather, managing editor at Axios, joins us to talk about the impeachment inquiry. Next, something very exciting as we talk to a 2019 Nobel Prize winner. Earlier this week, Dr. Greg Semenza and two others received the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work into how cells sense and adapt to oxygen availability. Because of their discoveries, there have been advancements that led to anemia and cancer drugs. Dr. Semenza, professor of genetic medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel laureate, joins us to explain his work, how he reacted when he got the call notifying him he had won, and the high school teacher that inspired his love of science and discovery. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The whole thing is a scam. It's a fix. And we wrote a letter yesterday and probably ends up being a big Supreme Court case. Maybe it goes a long time. I don't know. But the Republican Party has been treated unbelievably badly and unfairly by the Democrats. Joining us now is David Nather, managing editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. The impeachment talk is really all that's going on right now, looking into the president and his dealings with Ukraine. There's an interesting set of possibilities that could be happening. One could be that he gets impeached by the House and then gets acquitted by the Senate. And then later on, when 2020 happens, President Trump could very well be reelected to be president again. David, tell us a little bit about this quandary that House Democrats are facing, because everybody seems to signal that they've only have one chance at this. And this whole process really could just bring out more supporters for the president. This is a situation that's unlike any we've ever faced with a presidential impeachment. We've never had a president who has been impeached or nearly impeached before who might be in a position to win re-election after all that has happened. And yet that's what we're facing right now because President Trump is still in his first term. So it really is a situation where if the Democrats move forward with impeachment now and all signs certainly suggests that they're going to, they would be using the ultimate congressional weapon against President Trump now which means that if it fails to remove him from office, which it almost certainly will, a Republican Senate is not going to vote to convict him and remove him from office. Then what happens if President Trump is able to mobilize his own supporters and say, you know, look at this unfair process. They've been after me from day one. They've thrown everything at me that they've got. Teach them a lesson. And he rides that to reelection. I don't think anybody can tell you today whether that is the most likely scenario, but it's certainly a possible scenario. And if that happens, where do the Democrats go from there in a second term? What would Congress do if there's another scandal and they want to go after Trump again? What would they do? Would they impeach him again? Could you even do that? I asked around to legal and political experts, and the answer was, technically, yes, Congress can impeach a president again all over again if they wanted to. Politically, no, they would never want to go through that again. Yeah, I mean, and you can tell even just with the hesitance that Nancy Pelosi had to begin the impeachment inquiry to begin with. She was holding out for so long until the Ukraine thing happened. And then that's when she was getting pressure from all around from Democrats in the party to do this. And obviously, there's a whole host of things that would need to happen again. Let's say the president, you know, obviously, we're speculating about this, but 
let's yeah. say the president does get reelected, there would need to be another scandal that rises to the level of an impeachable offense to even <laughs> try to go through this process again. But as you're saying, politically, though, I mean, the Democrats will have exhausted all that political power if it doesn't happen this first time around. Exactly. And think about what it would mean if President Trump comes back from this and gets reelected, he would be able to say, look, the voters have vetted me again and they want me back in office. So you guys have nothing to say about it. Republicans would certainly be even less likely to turn against the president than, than they are now. They would completely fall in line. And as for Democrats, they might be seething and angry and wanting to try something else to hold the president accountable, as they said. But where do you go after impeachment? There's just nothing else you can do except multiple impeachments, which just seems ridiculous. Right. Let's talk about the strategy of the White House right now. A lot of people saying there is no strategy or a replay of the strategy against the Mueller investigation, you know, kind of delegitimize the whole thing. Just say it's a Democratic ploy because they're unhappy about the election. There was a recent Fox News poll that shows the majority there, 51 percent, very slim. They say they want President Trump impeached and removed from office. And President Trump right away in the same vein of delegitimizing all this stuff said, oh, these Fox News polls suck or the pollsters suck. Right. The same thing with this new investigation. This is the new witch hunt. This is an extension of all that. How effective is that? It may be somewhat effective in keeping more Republicans from turning against him. But look at those numbers. It's not just the Fox News poll. There was also a Washington Post poll the other day. And I think an NPR poll today, too. For the first time, you're starting to see polls suggest that a very slight majority of the public favors impeachment. And that's a place that we have not been at all up until now. So we know that the White House is at least somewhat worried about the poll numbers. They don't, as they've told my colleague Jonathan Swan, they don't necessarily believe what some of the polls have been saying about Republican support. They still think it's pretty rock solid, but the overall direction is not good news for them at all. What do we make about this eight-page letter that was sent by Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, to Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats, basically laying out the grievances of the White House related to the impeachment inquiry. They're calling for a vote. Obviously, the White House is stonewalling against the Democrats. You know, they're not allowing anybody to testify. A lot of people were saying that this letter really was just laying out more political motivations than anything legal. Yeah, it was a very political letter, and it was just kind of making official what was pretty obviously their strategy all along, which is not to cooperate in any way, shape, or form with this inquiry. And yes, they are trying to delegitimize it. It is a very much a, a strategy aimed at Trump's base, but it may help to prevent further defections. It's just that that kind of strategy, from all the evidence of the polls, it's not working with independents because independents are starting to turn in favor of impeachment now. So it really only works if the White House and the Trump campaign's theory is that they can motivate the base enough to really energize those voters to come out to the polls. And that's enough in the right states to put them back in office. It's totally interesting how this whole thing is playing out. And as we've kind of talked about in the beginning, if he is impeached and reelected, then we're in uncharted waters, as we've been through with a, a lot with this president. You know, he's changing a lot, so many things, and he seems impervious to a lot of these attacks from Democrats. So it's just interesting how he's going to navigate through this inquiry and then into the next election. The risk in all of this, of course, is that impeachment really is supposed to be the ultimate congressional weapon, not something to be treated trivially at all. But if you go through this and the House impeaches 
President Trump, and he's acquitted by the Senate and reelected, it's almost like the impeachment has no power. Somewhat similar to what happened with Bill Clinton when he was impeached by the House, acquitted by the Senate. And it wasn't completely as if it never happened. Clinton was certainly wounded and less effective for the last couple of years of his term, but he survived and he wasn't removed from office. Eventually, he and the Republican majority in Congress agreed to kind of move on in a way. It's just that there really is nowhere to go after this. David Nather, managing editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Greg is the 28th Nobel Laureate associated with Johns Hopkins, a prestigious list that gives great pride to our entire community. And we know, Greg, that though this honor is a profound, indeed a momentous one for you, that you will be right back in the lab tomorrow, if not later this afternoon, to continue doing the work that you have done for decades in order to advance knowledge that serves humanity. Joining us now is Dr. Greg Semenza, Professor of Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel Prize winning scientist for physiology or medicine. Dr. Semenza, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. They just announced the Nobel Prize in Medicine. It was awarded to you and two other scientists for your work on how cells adapt to oxygen availability. For those of us that aren't as scientifically inclined, can you help us understand what your work is? was. Every cell in your body requires a constant supply of oxygen, and that oxygen is used to make energy that powers every cell and keeps you alive. And the system that we identified basically ensures that every cell gets as much oxygen it needs every minute of every day. And how did you get involved into specifically this area of research? We were studying the gene for a hormone called erythropoietin. You may know it as EPO. It's the hormone that controls red blood cell production. And of course, red blood cells carry oxygen to the tissue. And when oxygen availability decreases, there are cells in the kidney that sense the decrease in oxygen, which we call hypoxia, and they increase their production of EPO. And EPO is secreted into the bloodstream and goes to the bone marrow where the red blood cell progenitors are located and stimulates the red cell progenitors to divide. That increases the number of red cells, increases the delivery of oxygen. So it's a beautiful system that maintains oxygen delivery in a normal, healthy individual. And what we're interested in trying to understand is, well, exactly how do those cells sense oxygen and then increase the expression of the erythropoietin gene to make more EPO and to set into motion an increase in red blood cell production? And because of these discoveries that you made, there's new drugs on the horizon, things that could help with cancer, things that could help with anemia. How does that all work out? So I mentioned that the EPO is normally made in the kidney. Individuals with uh, chronic renal failure, for example, are on dialysis because their kidneys don't work. They also stop making EPO, and as a result, they're anemic. And that used to require red blood cell transfusions that would put the patients at risk for disorders like uh, AIDS or hepatitis. Then when EPO was cloned, it was possible to make EPO in the laboratory, and then this protein could be injected into the patients, and then their bone marrow would make red blood cells without any transfusion. So that was a real advance. 
but it does require injection of this recombinant protein, which is expensive to make. And some individuals develop antibodies against the protein because it's not quite the natural protein that's made by the body. And some individuals have some cardiovascular side effects from taking EPO. So the system that we discovered started out with a transcription factor, which is a protein that turns genes on. And we call that protein hypoxia-inducible factor 1, or HIF1, because when cells are deprived of oxygen, they make lots of this protein. And it turns on the expression of hundreds of genes, one of which is EPO. And it turned out, and this was a discovery that was made by Peter Radcliffe and Bill Kalin, who are the other um, Nobel laureates this year with me, they discovered the, the, the mechanism by which the levels of HIF-1 change according to the oxygen level. And it's really neat because what happens is there's an enzyme that actually inserts oxygen atoms into HIF-1. And when those oxygen atoms get inserted into HIF-1, the protein can now be um, broken down and destroyed. So as long as you have lots of oxygen, you destroy HIF-1 and you don't turn on all these genes like EPO. But if there's not enough oxygen, then that doesn't happen. And now the HIF-1 protein can accumulate to high levels and turn on lots of genes. Why that's important from the point of view of drug treatment is that, as I mentioned, there's an enzyme that puts these oxygen atoms into the HIF-1 protein, and that enzyme, its activity can be blocked by a drug. And so several companies have developed drugs that effectively can block that enzyme. So as far as the cells are concerned, it's as if there's hypoxia because HIF-1 is accumulating and more EPO can be made and that can increase red blood cell production. And the benefit of these new treatments is that they can be taken as a pill. And there are now over 25,000 patients in advanced clinical trials for these agents. So I think we'll oh, know great. in a year or two whether they're effective and can be used as a substitute for EPO. With the way this science works and, and development of drugs, I mean, this takes many, many years. When did the majority of your research and discovery take place? So we first discovered the part of the epogene that was important for the response to hypoxia. And then having that piece of DNA, we found the transcription factor HIF-1 that binds to it. Then we were able to actually isolate the DNA sequences that code for the HIF-1 protein. And it turns out there's two subunits that we call alpha and beta. So we worked out the sequences for those. And that was in 1995. And that was really important because that kind of gave us tools that we could use for molecular analyses to look at the involvement of this system in whatever disease process they study. So 1995, we identified the DNA sequences for HIF-1. By 2000, 2000, 2001, Bill and Peter had identified the, the fact that these oxygen atoms are inserted into the HIF-1-alpha protein by these enzymes that are called prolyl hydroxylases. So those were the really kind of key discoveries. And then, as I said, as soon as those enzymes were discovered, it was immediately apparent how they might be blocked by small molecule drugs. And so the drug development started really right away at that time and then went through the usual progression of showing that you can turn on the epogene in cells, then showing it you can turn it on in animals, then showing that the drugs are safe in patients and that they increase EPO levels. And then finally, these very, very large trials to show that the drugs are effective. 
Dr. Semenza, I want to talk a little bit about winning the Nobel Prize. For a lot of people, that is probably the pinnacle of achievement, obviously beyond making the discovery and it helping people and all that. But the acknowledgement of winning the Nobel Prize is something that few people really experience. Tell us a little bit how you feel about that. And then also, please talk about your high school teacher, which I've seen in a number of stories about you, how Dr. Rose Nelson really gave you this kind of zest for science and discovery. I guess I could start with the phone call that came at 3.43 a.m. on Monday morning. So the phone was ringing out in the hall, and I was in a very deep sleep. My wife was in a very deep sleep, and I eventually woke up, made my way to the phone, but by the time I got there, the phone had stopped ringing. So I said, hmm. Do you and know? Course, do you know that? Of course, I knew what day it was. Okay, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're. Yeah, I knew what day it was, <laughs> but I, you know, I said, "Oh, I wonder if this is somebody's idea of a bad joke." And uh, so I went back to bed, and it was actually quite some time. I thought it might have been five or ten minutes. My wife thought it may have been half an hour, and then the phone rang again. And I was a little quicker to the phone this time. And Thomas Perlman from the Nobel Committee told me I had won the prize, and. It was funny because, you know, I was half awake and then he's telling me this incredible news and I was just so dazed <laughs> that I was mute. Right. <laughs> and I, I, the conversation was very one-sided. He apologized for waking me up. I said, oh, that's quite all right. But, yeah, with uh, news I'm like sure that, it's, it's quite all right, I guess, for sure. <laughs> so I don't know, but they, they're afraid that I won't be able to give a lecture based on my uh, telephone conversation <laughs> skills. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it was quite, awesome. a, it was quite a surprise. I don't think too many people expect that right, to right. get that call. So there's nothing that quite prepares you for it. And and your high school teacher Rose Nelson, because this is an important part. Right. You so know, she had predicted it. Yeah. She had predicted that moment 45 years ago. Oh wow, um, that's great. Not me personally. So first of all, you know, she was very unusual for a high school teacher because she had a PhD and had actually been trained in research. She had done a postdoc in a lab, uh, a very famous lab called Woods Hole on uh, Cape Cod. So she didn't just teach us the facts of biology. She told us who made the discoveries, how they made the discoveries, how exciting those discoveries were, how they changed biology, and just gave us this sense of wonder about biology and the living world. And then she would say to us things like, and I want you to remember when you win your Nobel Prize that you learned this here in our class. And she would say these kinds of things frequently. And she was just a giant. She was less than five feet tall, always had a beatific smile on her face. She had a jar of jelly beans on her desk in the front of the room. And if someone gave a particularly eloquent answer to one of her questions, she would beckon them to come up to the room uh, and dispense several of these jelly beans as a reward. So it just had an indelible impact on me yeah. and really set my career in motion. And uh, that's great. Yeah, you know, it's my great regret that she passed away and wasn't able to enjoy this with me. But, you know, I've gotten an incredible amount of feedback from folks in my high school who I haven't heard from in 40 years, just echoing my thoughts and saying that that's the way I felt too. Well, Dr. Semenza, congratulations and thank you for all your research, all the work that you and, and your colleagues have all done. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from it in the very near future. Dr. Greg Semenza, professor of genetic medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel laureate. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation with you. Take care. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>